Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. If love is going to flourish and deepen among us, then we will have to be rooted more deeply in the love of Christ for us. That was the point last week of the message that in order for love to grow on the fruit of the tree that we are we're going to have to send our roots down deep into the soil of the love of Christ which we saw last week is a bottomless rich soil of love we want love to abound among us and to that end we must experience the love of Christ for us. For that to happen, we have to be somehow in the love of Christ so that it's around us and holding us and getting into us. I call that uh, faith. I get that from 1 John 4.16 that says, We have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. Have you ever noticed that phrase? We have believed love. It doesn't say believe on love or believe in love, believe on Jesus or believe in Jesus. It says we have believed, direct object, love. We have believed love. That's the root. Now I'm shifting to the picture. That's the root of our life that has to go down into the soil of the love of Christ or the love of God for us. We saw last week that it is it's higher than we can imagine, deeper than we can imagine, broader than we can imagine. And for us to see it and know it, we got to get into it. we got to sink our roots down, build our foundation out. That's what is being described in 1 John 4.16. We have known and have believed the love. Believing is to get down into it, to sink the root of your life down into it and start absorbing it up and depending on it and living in the strength of it and tasting it every day and making it the energizing thing in your life. So the picture, we're the tree and on the branches is fruit because love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the ground on which the tree is planted is the love of God or the love of Christ. It falls off the bottom of your page because there's no bottom to it. And then draw roots down underneath the tree. And that's your, your faith that's going down in there, drawing up nutriment, everlasting, empowering, love-producing nutriment from being loved by Christ. 
That's the goal that we are about in these days. And faith seems to be the key. Um, Sometimes we can feel jealous of people, hundreds of people, who lived when Jesus lived, and they saw him with their eyes, they touched him with their hands, they saw him do love, they saw him touch lepers, they saw him take little children in his arms, they saw him wisely parry the opposition so that they couldn't make him look a fool to those who really had eyes to see. They saw him lay his life down. They saw him rise again. At least 500 of them did. They saw the whole thing and they believed on him. And we can look at that and say, well, I would too if I saw him. If I could touch him, if I could see him with these eyes. And we can become jealous and resentful that God hasn't set it up that way. And he hasn't set it up that way. And Jesus didn't intend to set it up that way. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, remember, in John 17... He prays like this, Father, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, these who can touch me and see me. I do not pray in behalf of these alone, but for those also who will believe on me through their word. That's this. This is the Bible. Through their word, people come to faith. God does not ordain for you to see Jesus with your eyes. You should not ask for a revelation like that. If he wanted to break the rules and stand forth in some physical form, he could do it. That's not the way he set up the world. They will believe on me through their word. But that means that what we should pray for, long for, and look for is that when this book opens before us, And we read the story of Jesus Christ that standing forth from the pages of this book would be a self-evidencing, self-authenticating revelation of the glory of the love of Jesus Christ that would compel faith or cause root to go down. In reality, Jesus did not withhold the physical appearance of himself from us because he does not love us. He said, it's better for me to go to be with the Father. Something is better in the way God is running the world in the absence of physical, touchable reality. We must trust him for that. It is better this way. It is better this way. He would be a localized deity if he were here, wouldn't he? He'd be an American deity or a Jewish deity or a South American deity where things are really hopping, you know. It's good for us that he is not seeable, not touchable. But oh, the testimony of those who saw him is there. He inspired it and the Holy Spirit illumines it. And by grace, something happens in the heart. And we see with spiritual eyes and we sense with living hearts the reality of the love of Christ. Now, that's what's got to happen. Two people came up to me after the service and said, you know, you could you could put that in the picture. You didn't put it in the picture. That's the rain. That's the sunshine. The word of God is the is the light shining on the tree. And the word of God is the rain coming down, watering the soil so that the root takes strength from the light and strength from the water and goes deeper and deeper. And that's right. So if you can draw rain and you can draw sun, add it to the picture. Now, all of that by way of kind of setting the stage for four weeks of a sub-series, the big series that will probably go through June is The Greatest of These is Love. 
The sub-series for four weeks ending on Easter is the depth of the love of Christ for us. And what I've just done is give you a rationale for why we're focusing on the love of Christ for us. If we don't get our roots down into that soil, the fruit isn't going to come and we want fruit of love among us. Now, let me show you the four weeks that are coming. Let me summarize the four weeks. What I want through this summary is for you to join me in prayer and for you to join me in meditation and for you to invite people to church for whom any given topic on some Sunday looks appointed by God for their soul. There are four ways I find in the New Testament that the depth of the love of Christ for us is manifested. Number one, you know that somebody loves you deeply if it costs them a lot to love you. If somebody has to take bruises to love you, you you feel like they love you. But if they have to get their arm off to love you, you feel more love. If they have to lose their eyes to love you, you feel more love. And if they lay their whole life down for you, then you, you say that was the deepest love. Greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friend. So the first way that we see the depth of the love of Christ is in the costliness of his sacrifice. Here's the second way. This will be next Sunday. The second way we see it is in the undeservingness of those whom he loves. If if you are loved by somebody who's a friend that you have served and worked for and been kind to and done everything they wanted all their life long, well, you would appreciate being loved. And it would be love. But if somebody comes toward you with lavish kindness and forgiveness and graciousness and sacrifice to bless you, whom you have talked about cruelly, whom you've been mean to, whom you've ignored, whom you've disdained, snubbed. That's the kind of love that you say, this is deep. This is deep. So the second way we see the love of Christ going deep is in relation to and proportion to the undeservingness of those whom he loves. That's next Sunday. Palm Sunday, two weeks from this morning. Three weeks. I'm getting mixed up here. But anyway, the third one is that we see the depth of the love of Christ in the greatness of the benefits that come to us through his love. If somebody helps you pass a test in school by helping you study, you feel I've been loved. Or if somebody works, spends time to help you get a job when you're jobless, you feel a little more loved, perhaps. If they help you uh, escape from a prison camp where your life is in jeopardy by jeopardizing their own, you feel really loved. And if they help you come into the enjoyment of the presence of God where you no longer endure sin and guilt and escape the fires of hell and enjoy His presence forever, then what greater love could there be than that gift? And so the greatness of the love of Christ or the depth of the love of Christ is seen in the greatness of the benefits that come to us through his act of love. That's number three. And number four is this. This will be Easter Sunday morning. You can tell when somebody loves you deeply by the freeness 
the freedom of their love for you. If your spouse dies and the insurance company pays you $40,000, your emotional response is not generally, wow, does that insurance company really love me? You know, and the reason for that is because under law, they had to do that. And you don't know anybody in that company who had especially free desire to do that. But if in the month following the death of that spouse, your Sunday school class has food on your table every day. And somebody's on the phone with you every day. And somebody visits you every week. And you think, there's no rules at this church that says you have to do that. These people don't have to do this. This is free. They're choosing to do this. Then you feel like the love has sunk deeper. There's a correlation between the depth of love and the freedom with which people perform it. So Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And if I lay it down, I can take it again. And that's Easter Sunday morning. Okay, do you see where we're going? Four Sundays on the depth of the love of Christ. First today, it's costliness. And I direct your attention to verse 1 and 2 of Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And gave himself up for us. Some translations have for you or for us. And it's the same group of people in either case. He loved you and gave himself up for you and me. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now let me just make four very simple, very plain, very wonderful observations. So that we, we don't buzz over this. Fast reading of scripture has some advantages and many disadvantages, like not seeing. First observation, be sure you see here that Paul, the apostle, is drawing your attention to Christ's love. To Christ's love. Verse two, Christ loved you and gave himself for you. Second observation, be sure you see that the measure of this love is the sacrifice not of his money or his time or his energy or even his suffering, but of himself all the way in death. He gave his life. Third, be sure you see that it is for you, for you that he died. Christ loved you and gave himself. And fourthly, be sure that you see that the Father, God the Father, is pleased about this. This is amazing to me. This image, this metaphor is just amazing. God is watching. He's planned it all. He's guiding the whole thing. He's watching his son be tortured. He loves his son. This is my loved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I love my son. I love my son. And he stoops down to watch this real closely. 
as his son is killed. And he smells it. He smells it. And the text says, it's sweet to him. It's a fragrant aroma. He has no allergies. It's really sweet. Now that's an amazing thing to stand over a person being tortured and say it's a sweet aroma. You know what that says? Well, I hope it says to you what it says to me. It says, God loves Jesus' love for you. God loves Jesus' love for you. That's what he saw. That's what he smelled in the blood of his son. Now, at this point in the message, I stop and say, Lord, what in the world do you do? What do I do as a preacher here to ignite this? I wrote my son last night on the email. I was trying to be in touch with him regularly. And I told him about this text. And I, I said to Karsten, um, text like this are like the atom bomb. I've seen photographs of the atom bomb. I forget the name for it, but it's about this long, you know, looking around, lying there like a big, like a big water toy in the belly of this B-52. You just look at it and it's nothing. It's ugly. It's powerless. I think texts like this we're so familiar, which is so familiar. He loved me and gave himself for me. Which is like a big water toy, like the atom bomb, and we just kind of handle it and pass it around. And I said to Carson, what can I do? What can I do? Where is the plug on this thing that would, that would ignite this power? Well, one answer is this. See if this doesn't fit your experience. It is ironic. It is paradoxical to the core that we become so familiar with magnificence that one of the ways to rekindle awakening of love to the magnificent is to turn to a sub-wonder that flowed from the magnificence that we're not as familiar with, though it is lower. And we look at it and it blows our minds and awakens us and startles us and engages us emotionally, though it's less. Less, way less than that. And then, with that sub-wonder kindling us, we turn back to the source of the sub-wonder, and we say, yes! So here's the sub-wonder. Some of you remember the story of Chuck Colson about 20 American prisoners of war during World War II who were charged just to do hard labor every day and then bring their shovels in at night and stand them up on the wall and the guards would count the shovels to make sure and then they'd go off to their barracks and blisters all over their hands. And one night, this is a true story, he said, I'll take his word for it, that uh, they put their shovels on the wall and the guard, who was a very cruel and heartless man, counted, and he counted 19 shovels for 20 guys. And he turns in rage and says, okay, which one of you didn't bring your shovel in today? And there was silence. And he pulls his pistol. And he says, I'm going to shoot five of you. If you don't stand forward and tell me who didn't bring his shovel in. And there was about five seconds. And a 19-year-old boy, the age of my Ben, steps forward with his head bowed down. 
like this. And the guard grabs him and shoots him through the head. Kills him. And then turns and says, I warn you, you won't lose your tool. And walks away. And the other 19 look at the wall and count the shovels. And they're 20. He'd miscounted. Now, can you imagine what they would feel as they knelt down over this boy who just saved four or five of them? And, and let, your, let your mind ask this question. In the five seconds between the pointing of the gun and the firing of the bullet, what went through his head? There might be a wife waiting for me someday. If I ever fell in love, I could get an education and have a career. I could get that truck. I could uh, fish with my dad. I think I'll die. I think I'll die. I would choose to die. Isn't that awesome? That's a true story. That's a sub-wonder that stuns us. Stuns us because we haven't read it before. Jesus did that for you. He did that for you. Greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. I want us to look at the love of Jesus. I want us to consider the life he laid down. He laid down his life. Let's consider his life. One of the reasons this story moves me is not only because I have a son who's 19, but because he's young. Had he been 89, maybe, and the other 19 had been 19, and he had contemplated them and said, I've had a rich and full life. I don't have too much longer to live. I will give my life for them. That would have been an amazing and beautiful thing. But that he's 19 with everything yet to be lived and that he gives it away for them is more wonderful. Consider four or five things about the life that Jesus laid down for you. Number one, it was a young life. I'm going to have you raise your hand. If you are 34 years or older, raise your hand. Okay. He never made it that far. He never made it that far. He never lived the life that you're now living. He was cut off in his prime, as we say. Secondly, he was the oldest son of a widowed mother. Small thing, maybe. His brothers, evidently, he did not consider yet fit to care for her. And he was being taken away voluntarily. And when he was on the cross, John says he looked at her. And maybe his eyes scanned the scene for James or Jude, his brothers, whether they were there. He didn't choose them. He looked at John. He knew John. He knew John. He knew John's heart. And he said, woman. Behold your son. John, behold your mother. 
It was real important to Jesus to get this taken care of. He was being taken out of a role. His life was a role to take care of his mother. And he was giving his life away for you so that his mother would be destitute. And he took care of her. Third, he was the most kind, the most caring, the most wise, and the most courageous man who's ever lived. Peter said, no sin was ever committed by Jesus. No deceit or guile was ever found on this lip of Jesus. You know, for the last two weeks I've said, this is the last member of our bodies to come under control, this tongue. Jesus had it under control. He never sinned with his tongue, never. The life he laid down was a sinless life. It was a life of beautiful balance, joy and sorrow, tenderness and toughness, justice and mercy, grief and anger, speech and silence, prayer and action. He was living the life that was the most valuable life that had ever been lived. And that's the life he gave for you. Fourthly, consider that he was the Son of God. Now what that means is that there was a divine nature mysteriously united in one person to a human nature. One person. Jesus Christ united in two natures, a divine nature and a human nature in some mysterious unity. So that the value of this life was not relatively superior like one human is more valuable than another human because that human lived a sinless life. That's true. But this life was superior to all other human lives because it was superior the way God is superior to all human life. We value our lives. Oh, believe me, we value our lives. We take antibiotics real quick when there's some strep. If we have a pain that's unusual or a lump that's surprising, oh, do all of our longings and our energies flow towards no to cancer. We value our lives. Oh, yes. And you know why? We are created in the image of God and we are meant to value life. But our value flows as an image from an original. And if the image is so valuable to us, how much more the original from which all value flows to the images? That's Jesus. He's the original. And that's the life that he laid out for you. Or fifthly, consider that he was loved supremely by his father. This is my loved son with whom I am well pleased. The father loved the son and gave him for us. Suppose the 19-year-old boy was the son of the President of the United States. And he knew that there was a SWAT team that could get him out. Not only escape from the death, but escape from the prison. Twelve legion in the SWAT team. Twelve thousand could do it. And suppose also that his father, when he heard about the sacrifice of his son, loved it and loved you because of it. And suppose he moved in on that prison and took you 19 out 
and brought you to the White House and took you to the boy's bedroom and opened his bank account and all of his gifts he'd ever given him and began divvying them up to you. That's the life that he laid down. He was loved that much by his father. Now turn your attention for just one last minute or two away from the life to the sacrifice. The sacrifice, the costliness of this life being laid down. You know, one of the differences between the the 19-year-old boy and Jesus is that in order for Jesus to suffer and die, he had to plan it way ahead of time because as the Logos who existed before creation, he couldn't die. Immortal. He didn't have any body. He could not die. And yet he wanted to die for you. So he planned the whole thing by clothing himself with a body so that he could get hungry and get weary and get sore feet. The incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. That's what the incarnation is. The incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for spikes. He needed to have a a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks, so that Judas would have a place to kiss and there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt. I just plead with you, when you're reading the Bible and you read water toy texts like He loved you and gave himself for you. You wouldn't go too fast over it. Linger, linger, linger and plead with him that your eyes would be opened. Let me close with a question. Can you, will you now take this personally for yourself? You know what Satan wants to do right now? He has not been able to stop me this morning from describing to you the love of Christ in its depth. What he could do right now, maybe, is in a subtly, even spiritual way, get into your brain and cause you to put that picture that I've just tried to paint for you of the love of Christ for you on your coffee table like a big, glossy book of canyon called Canyons, U.S. Canyons. And you flip through the book, you say, oh, aren't those wonderful canyons? And then you walk away to the kitchen and you murmur and you act unlovingly and your voice is unkind. Here we are standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon this morning. We've seen some of it. We need wings now. We need wings. We don't want photographs. We, we don't want to say, the love of Christ is great. There it is. There it is. It's on the screen. And we say, wow. And we do a worship thing on it. And, and we, we do a teaching thing on it. 
And it's still on the screen. It's in the book. And, and Satan would be, if, if that's what he's got to settle for, admiring Jesus from a distance, and having no root, no involvement, no hang gliding in and through the Grand Canyon, He would be satisfied. So, I'm going to close with a testimony from the Apostle Paul and just pray with you as we close that it would become true for you. It's Galatians 2.20. I remember back in 1966 when I got mononucleosis and was in the hospital for three weeks and Chaplain Welch came in and as he was leaving the first time he turned and looked over his shoulder and said, John, what's your favorite Bible verse? And I hadn't thought about what my favorite Bible verse was. But out of my mouth came Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, this nitty-gritty daily life that everybody has to live, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Would you take that, please? Take that personal pronoun. Don't say you. Don't say us. Those are true. Would you say me? The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the love that I want you to send your roots down into. It will make a great difference in our church, in your life, in your family. Lord, do that, I pray. And all the people said, Amen.